friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to The Extra Milestone, your weekly film anniversary podcast where we take a trip back in time to discover the classic films that made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, Sam Noland. Back from my hiatus last week, it was just bad timing and I had to step away, but luckily, John Negroni and Julia Tatey were there to swoop in and have a wonderful conversation about Billy Wilder's The Apartment. But I, alas, I have returned. And with me, I have one of my very good friends, a man I've known for many year now. and Yeah, probably about I a think, year. I, a little, almost a year and a half. And I think that you will want to be friends with him too. Please welcome my friend, soon to be yours, Robert Wilkinson. Rob, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, when I first, when John first came to me and said, Sam, I want I want this thing to get bigger. Like for a lot for the longest time, Extra Milestone was just a monthly show. Uh, and and John came to me and said, Sam, listen, you're I can tell you're being inhibited by this monthly format. I believe in your ability to do this on a weekly basis. And I knew that one of the guests that I had to have on eventually was my friend Robert, who I talk with movies about when we used to work together uh, at the Alamo Draft House in Westminster, which closed for obvious reasons, but will open again soon. And there were times when I would get off work and I would go up to the front desk where Robert works and I would spend literally about four hours there <laughs> just talking movies. And yep. it was a fun time, wasn't it? Yeah. I look forward to when those days shall return again. And you know what? This is probably the next best thing because... When it came to deciding what to talk about, we are we are officially entering into the month of July, although it is mid-September in the real world. Uh, on the Extra Milestone, we're still a couple of months behind the actual present when it comes to celebrating anniversaries. So we are in July, even though we're well into the fall. And there's actually the, the, the list of eligible titles for July is not as big as you might think it was. We're, whereas for the month of June, there were tons and tons of titles that like I had to I had to not do a few of them and it was really painful to cut out some of them from uh, being talked about on the extra milestone with July there's only like a small handful and I think the reason for that is because historically the biggest like the the movies expected to succeed the most were released in June so that they could get the most summer numbers you know what i'm saying yeah and then sort of the less not necessarily the lower profile ones but the ones that they thought wouldn't hit quite as hard they save for july it's like we can sort of throw those in as a palate cleanser to end to cap off the summer and that doesn't mean that we didn't get some good selections though and today we've got a really really bizarre double feature and <laughs> that's saying something because we've had a lot of the a, a lot of weird pairings and in some cases trios in the past and this this may take the cake because i'm just I, i'll reveal them both right now and of course we'll talk about them one at a time but we're going to start off by talking about charles lawton's 1955 Horror classic, I say, gothic, expressionistic, <laughs> landmark achievement of the genre, The Night of the Hunter, which is one of my favorite movies. I'm curious to hear if it is one of yours, Robert. And then after that, we're going to talk about the Zucker and Abrams comedy from 1980. I'm sure, surely you've heard of it. And yes, I am calling you Shirley. Don't call me Airplane. Shirley. 
I, I will, I'm going to be calling you Shirley on numerous occasions throughout this podcast. So be prepared, darling. Be prepared. It is airplane with an exclamation point. So so from here on out, we have to say it like airplane with a little emphasis. Yeah, you got to have that exclamation point. Mm-hmm. There are any movie with the audacity to include an exclamation point in a, in its title at least deserves to be referred to correctly. Uh, some are much. Some are much better than others, but I think we can at least we can at least show them that much reverence. So, Robert, what say we get into this strange, strange pairing that we've decided on? I say we get started. Awesome. So, yeah, as I stated earlier, we are going to start by talking about the Night of the Hunter. Ben never told you he throwed it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. Feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run, hide in the staircase. Run quick. Ruby, get. What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here. Then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. A movie that is is kind of interesting because on Extra Milestone, especially recently since we've been able to sort of expand, I've been getting to talk about a lot of movies that are acclaimed and well-known among cinephile circles. But when it comes to the general public, the general lexicon of cinematic knowledge, they're not as widely talked about the grapes of wrath comes to mind for instance where yeah. i got to talk about that with my friend adonis gonzalez and that's a great movie have, have you seen uh, the grapes of wrath robert yeah i um actually saw the grapes of wrath under very similar circumstances to when i first saw night of the hunter hmm. Interesting. It, what was what were those circumstances um so the university that i went to would do a weekly classic film series and so i went to that every semester for whole time I was there. And were they doing like screenings and stuff? Yeah. It would just be a weekly screening that they'd put on. And like one year, the theme was the Oscar winning screenplay films. And so one semester they did original screenplays and the next semester was adapted screenplays. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it it was a pretty good event. I miss going to that and I'm sure they're not doing it right now because you know yeah probably not uh, at the moment <laughs> and i saw both grace of the wrath and night of the hunter for the first time at one of these screenings nice yeah i'm, I'm curious to hear about how your uh, initial viewing uh, sort of compared to this recent one for this podcast and Actually, I realize I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because there's something I forgot to do earlier is might as well continue with it now. Uh, Robert, you're new to podcasting, as I understand it, and I'm sure this will not be uh, the last appearance that we that we see from you, my friend. But yeah, let the listeners not. know, hopefully I, I'm anticipating that it will not be. Let the listeners know a little bit about uh, who you are sort of as a cinephile and beyond. Well, hmm. I Tough work question, at, I know. <laughs> yeah. I work at Alamo Draft House, like mm-hmm. you. So Damn right, right there. Love movies enough to go work at a movie theater. The um, best movie theater. My 
undergraduate studies were actually in film. Right now mm. I'm studying so I can become a film archivist, you know, just get hands on with old movies all the time. Yeah, which is awesome, by the way. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to say, like, how I first really got into movies. My parents had always kind of shown me uh, older movies, so there was never really an issue for me to get into the old stuff that I had friends say, like, oh, no, that's way too old for me. I don't want to watch silent movies and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think James Bond might have been the thing that really got me started. Oh, really? Because going through that whole series and seeing from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, I got a lot more interested in just films made back then. And at some point, I found out about Alfred Hitchcock, started Ooh. watching his movies, and then it just went off from there. Nice. Yeah, as it tends to do. That's yeah. I actually didn't know that. So that's very fascinating. And so uh, one thing led to another, I take it, and it led you to this uh, weekly, what was it, the the film classics club or something like that <laughs> the classic so film bad. series the classic film series yes i i apologize my i have the memory of an insect uh <laughs> it's all good and and so and that is how you first came to uh, night of the hunters so so did you when they announced that they were going to be showing that this is what i really want to am, am most curious about had you heard of it before or was that sort of the complete 100 percent introduction to it i would say it was like probably 99 percent introduction because like mm -hmm. i've had seen the title in places showing up on like best of lists and things like that. So I had at least heard of it before going in, but like a majority of the details I knew nothing about. Yeah. And I'm sure you were probably at least somewhat familiar with uh, the very, the many inspirations that other filmmakers took from night of the hunter, some of which we'll mention along the way. I had <laughs> kind of a similar Thing to it when it came when it came to hearing about it via online lists. Now, this is a list I've brought up on numerous occasions on Extra Milestone History, and I will continue to do so because in 2008, Empire Magazine did a list of the top 500 greatest movies of all time. Very ambitious project. They compiled all the opinions of critics and casual moviegoers and filmmakers alike and they sort of somehow averaged it out i don't know exactly how they did it but they figured out these are as best as we can figure the top 500 movies ranked in order from one to 500 and i remember discovering that list somehow i have no idea how and being fascinated by the number of movies that i had not heard of on there of course there were many classics that i had known and and seen and were familiar with and everything, but there were tons, if not the majority of the list that I had no idea what they were. And this is me at like 13 years old becoming in first enamored with the art form of cinema. And wow. in the top 500 at number 71 on the list, I see this movie, the night of the hunter. I'm like, Oh, what is that? And I look at it. I read a little about it. I I'm like, sounds interesting. And then at some point I, I want to say it was, early 2017 i think for whatever reason i was just looking for something to watch i'm like i'll pick something off of that list that i haven't seen and that was what ended up winning and i fell in love it was really fantastic and then i watched it later that year on halloween i can't remember why maybe it, i was just in the mood for something spooky as is uh, twas the season i suppose and yeah. yeah, and this was my third time seeing it and it just gets i just become more more enamored by it every single time yeah, it's uh, it's a really, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a very unique movie, even for its mm -hmm. time. Yeah, 
Yeah, especially which is interesting considering the way it sort of reverts to at the time older storytelling techniques to tell its own story. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so, so I, I forget if you specified or not, but in that initial viewing in the classic film series, what was sort of your takeaway from it at the time as compared to just watching it, uh, rewatching it recently? Well, one of, one of the big takeaways for me. And it was interesting that you described this as a horror movie. I see this a lot more as a noir movie. Hmm, I can see it. Like, because definitely just with like some of the cinematography and the shadows used in it, as well as the themes. But like Robert Mitchum was the most standout thing for me. First time seeing it, just his performance is always the thing that I'll remember about this movie. It's not like the plot details that come to me. It's the shots and Powell. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is, and I read this, um, I, I forget if it came from an interview or if it was just something that was sort of picked up along the way, but one of the sort of ethoses that Charles Lawton was employing along the way was when it came to the production design, the art direction and things of that nature, what they tried to do was not make it look necessarily realistic 100% of the time. And if you watch the movie, you can tell it's very stagey. It's very, a lot of it is very deliberately artificial. It, it almost looks like something off of an old Universal Monsters uh, set soundstage, you know? Yeah. Like this is, this is kind of a, the landscapes especially are something you'd see out of like Bride of Frankenstein or something. Yeah, like definitely. It was meant to be painted but literally and figuratively as sort of the way a child might see the world might pick up little fragments sort of ideas of places rather than what they actually are if you look closely there are a lot of details that actually don't make a whole lot of sense there are like just sort of fences that don't connect to any house that's something that you might imagine that a child would see and it's funny that you bring that up about details that don't make sense because one thing that just stood out to me a lot at one point in the movie is in the courthouse when uh, Powell and then later the father is in front of the judge. There's a portrait of Abraham Lincoln on the wall. And I was just wondering why would they have a photo of Abraham Lincoln in West Virginia in the fifties? That is weird. It it was to the thirties because it's set in the uh, Great Ah, Depression. So that's even weirder. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that. That's interesting. There, yeah, there are a lot of uh, background details in this movie that I'm sure there are dozens and dozens that I haven't noticed. Um, Let's let's give just sort of a little basic gist of the plot. Um, We are going to be talking about sort of the ins and outs of the movie. We'll try not to give anything away without warning, but just know that we're going to kind of assume you've seen the movie from here on out. But in in case you haven't, and you're curious, uh, the plot of the night of the hunter is that it is West Virginia. It is during the great depression. And what happens is that there's this priest out there, Harry Powell played by Robert Mitchum played wonderfully by Robert Mitchum, might I say, who is, who has sort of, it's it's never really made clear whether or not he's an actual preacher. But what is very clear from the get-go is that he's sort of let this power, this idea that he's able to preach the word of God and that people will listen. He's let that get to his head, or maybe it was just always was always insane in the first place. And is sort of going around from town to town and sort of manipulating people and struggling with his own sort of 
crazed mindset. And eventually, by by sort of sheer chance, there is winds up in a jail cell with a man who is the father of two young children who he's given ten thousand dollars to. Or I I forget if it's ex- exactly ten thousand, but it's something like that. It's a huge sum of money, especially at the time. And he's done. He's stolen it because of the he's just become so disenfranchised with the great depression and everything and is going to as he says use it to make sure that children won't uh won't want i believe is the word won't go hungry or unsheltered or uncared for in any way especially his own kids who end up becoming sort of the protagonists of the movie they wind up in a jail cell together and harry powell eventually susses out that he has two kids that are in possession of a lot of money and decides, well, I'm going to go after him. And he does. And really insidiously and kind of terrifyingly, really, in sort of insinuates and infiltrates into this small town where these kids live. And it's this long sort of cat and mouse game of this guy just going after them and employing various techniques to do so. And it's very expressionistic. As I mentioned earlier, they took a lot of cues from some of the early silent movies, like uh, especially from Germany, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Metropolis, things of that nature. A lot of great set design in this movie. And it's really suspenseful. It's really eerie. It's really exciting. And it's really, really great. And I assume that you concur with that as well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, one thing... Um you didn't mention in the description was that he's done this multiple times before. Like that becomes a thing at the end that he's keeps going after these widows for their money. Yeah, yeah that's true. And that this 10,000 is now just his big break. Mm-hmm. He's sort of like, Oh, that will, that sort of, you know, the scam or scam is a very light word to use, but that's sort of the scheme, let's say, to end all other schemes, because that is uh, I, I forget if I address this or not. But the father of the two young children is being sentenced to death for robbery and everything. So yes. they are now without a father and they have a very troubled mother from the looks of it. And the way that Harry Powell comes in and really just preys upon her. And and indeed, the entire town, you can tell that they're sort of really melodramatically. Yes, but the, the intent is clear that they're really taken by this outsider who's, you know, showing up out of the blue and looks and feels different from everywhere from uh, everyone else and is just sort of saying like and is a man of God, you know, yeah. and yet is just pouring all of these lascivious words into their ear when all the while his only intent is genuine evil like this is this is a really scary guy and i think robert mitchum is really well cast in the role yeah robert mitchum just has a way of playing scary guys mm-hmm. uh cape fear comes to mind yeah, in particular I was gonna that. <laughs> doing something very similar um but different still like yeah i think the thing that he really has down is Walking that line between, uh, let's let's just say, charismatic and genuinely scary, but walking it not finely, like really swaying back and forth violently in and out of each category. There are there are some scenes, and I say some very deliberately. There are some scenes where I'm I could see myself watching it out of context and being like, 
oh, well, he seems like a nice guy, but there's always just something about him. And I think it's the eyes. He's able to act. He's able to have these insane eyes, (laughs) which not every actor could do. And there's one exchange of dialogue in particular that gets me every time, which is when he takes John, the little boy aside and is trying to figure out like, so where's the money? And or something to that effect. And at one point starts to suspect that John is lying and just basically says like, not keeping secrets, are we? And I shudder in fear every time because of how abruptly the facial expression and sort of the general demeanor changes to be really terrifying. He's like this watcher in the dark that uh, just refuses to, to, go too long without being scary, which I think is really effective, Uh, especially when it's done sort of in secret. It's one of those things where everyone in the town is like, oh, he's a he's a cool guy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But we all know because we're being allowed to see things that the townsfolk are not. We know we know that this guy is up to some some mischief, to put it lightly. Yeah. And. One of the things I really like about this movie is just the first 10 minutes of it, because right from the beginning, we have that song and that warning about false prophets that sets the tone for the entire movie. Mm -hmm. Then we cut into kids finding a dead body. And then we have Powell driving off and talking to God about his misdeeds. And it's just such a great way to introduce this character. We learn kind of everything about him right away because he's not going to be the primary focus of the story. If that makes sense, it's more about the kids and yeah. having to survive him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's first build because he's the most significant presence, but yes, yeah. the, the protagonists really are uh, John and Pearl. These two, uh, these two poor children who have, who, what are they like? John's maybe, nine ten years old and then pearl's even younger like maybe six or seven so pretty much for all intents and purposes all they've ever known is the great depression and i think about that a lot with this they're they're, the other two great great depression movies if that makes sense uh to kill a mockingbird and the grapes of wrath i think speaking of which those also sort of paint an interesting picture of the time but Neither, of the, but they both go for sort of the genuine look. And I think this has a little bit more in common with To Kill a Mockingbird in that it follows kids and it sort of yeah. taps into that same idea, uh, more so with Night of the Hunter and more so towards the very end with how these poor children have known nothing by uh, except for this. And really, we see towards the end that they're kind of the most pure of us and I think it's really a really beautiful thing at the end. And I would say when it comes to the actual acting of the kids, I think it's employed well. Let's just say that this is not um, like, you know, 400 blows or bicycle thieves (laughs) child acting. I would say there are certainly moments that stick out as being a little bit stagey, a little bit, you know, like these are clearly kids not necessarily playing a role, but just sort of saying lines. So yeah. can't get too mad at them, but I, it's, it's, I think it was more with Pearl. And I think that is just because she was younger. It was a lot harder for her. John mm-hmm. seemed pretty passable to me. Like most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not stand out 
400 blows level or anything like that but mm-hmm. he didn't take me out of the movie it didn't feel like yeah i think you're absolutely right i think um there there's there's sort of uh what's the what's the phrase i'm looking for there's a narrative approach to this movie that i've alluded to a couple of times which is meant to be kind of artificial a lot of the camera angles are meant to sort of seem like a storybook you know what i'm saying like this is this this is sort of what you might imagine from if someone was reading aloud from like a particularly scary kids book or maybe telling a story around the campfire or something back in the day you know what i'm saying where there's a lot of scenes that actually sort of belie actual reality and physics for instance there's one scene it's when harry powell first shows up to the town and the way we're intro- uh, the way that the kids i should say are introduced to him is that they look out their window one night and suddenly this huge shadow of robert mitchum's silhouette comes in through the window and fills the entire frame and overwhelms john completely as he's looking out the window and then it cuts to harry powell and there's actually no light source that would produce that kind of shadow it's all (laughs) for the effect of having of, of establishing this idea that this presence has arrived and is going to is will not leave the town unscathed and indeed he doesn't there's uh, there's a thing he does, and this is kind of a, a little bit of an early twist, but he decides I'm going to sort of prey on these kids' mother, which he does, and ends up marrying her sort of not necessarily against her will, but you can tell that she's sort of being uh, intoxicated by this man in some yeah. weird way. There's especially one exchange of dialogue on their wedding night when she goes into the room and he sort of just says all these really harsh things to her about what it is to be, you know, a woman married to a man. And, and you're like, oh my gosh, this poor woman. And that, and what we don't know is that these, at least on the first viewing, is that these are her last days on earth. And the reveal that of, of her corpse is one of the most striking shots I've ever seen. Yes. Um, the first time i saw that that was like one of the main shots that i thought of was just her underwater in the car and the weird thing was in my memory i thought that happened towards like the end of the movie and then watching this time i'm like oh we're at the middle (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting i have that all the time yeah where where something feels like it's happening at a different time than it is so it's some weird sort of uh spatial mandela effect kind of thing i'd be curious to hear what the actual explanation is behind that i think for me it's usually a good sign because that means the pacing's really good for the rest of the movie because it doesn't feel like very much time passes yeah i think so too and yeah this movie is really effective with its pacing it is like what is it like 92 minutes or something like that it's not it's it's an easy watch yeah (laughs) it, it does not outstay its welcome like a lot of a lot of movies, uh, regardless of when they came out, there are just some that clearly do not need to be as long as they are. Yeah, and I think this is definitely one of them. Um, I want to give a little bit, just a little bit of uh, sort of the background of the movie itself, just to sort of uh, clarify and set the stage. It is based on the 1953 novel by Davis Grubb. Uh, the screenplay was written by James Aggie or Aggie, perhaps I have no idea, and. 
what was interesting is that Charles Lawton, the director, who was actually a very accomplished actor, uh, both in theater and in film, and had some very notable roles throughout the 30s and 40s. Uh, yes. he, was, he, he played a great hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939. And this was his only directorial effort in film. And yeah. he actually collaborated with Davis Grubb, the writer of the original novel, uh, which is which is not something that you hear about a lot with where a writer of a story sort of becomes heavily involved with the adaptation from screen or, or from a uh, page to screen. And he it's actually definitely did a lot getting of the, more common for that to happen. But yeah, back then, not so much. Yeah. They, they sort of just stepped away and were like, do whatever you feel like with it. Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of the vibe I've gotten over the years and actually made a lot of the illustrations that ended up being sort of the visual cues throughout this movie. So I think that was a very good choice oh, wow. because this movie would not be the same without sort of the aesthetic that it has throughout. Yeah. And uh, as, as, most of the cast has explained Charles Lawton was actually kind of hesitant, kind of unsure of himself as a director and would sort of second guess himself. And which is so bizarre considering how, how magnificent this movie is, but also it made for, as I've, as I've read a very positive experience on the set. He was very agreeable <laughs> and, and was open to sort of working out what the end product would be. So I think that's, that's always uh, nice to hear. And I want to make sure I give a shout out to the director of photography, Stanley Cortez, who also shot Orson Welles's The Magnificent Amberson. So oh, wow. good, great get there, Charles. I think you, you definitely made the right choice. And uh, Hilliard Brown was the art director. So all of those played a very heavy hand into this. And the movie was not really that much of a success when it first came out it was it was actually the marketing was very effective and indeed it it made its money back it didn't lose uh money or anything but it just was not that liked upon initial release which is funny because as i do this show as i do extra milestone and talk about all these old movies i hear about all these older films that just were not really revered when they first came out and so many of them have gone on to be some of the best, most iconic movies of all time. So it just makes me so curious what movies that are coming out now are going to be <laughs> looked back on decades from now and viewed as some of the greatest of all time. I have no idea. I couldn't say. Yeah. It, that's one of the good things about time. We see the duds sink to the bottom and the uh, greats rise to the top. Um, there you go. Like one of my favorite movies, Detour that was a B movie in its time and didn't mm. get much recognition until a bunch of French film critics started to watch it more. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. Cahier du cinema. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Detour is great. I think I, I wrote an article about that last year. It's kind of one of the definitive noirs, isn't it? Speaking of which. Yeah. I really, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that we're on the same page with that one, but yeah, it <laughs> was that negative reaction that sort of, discourage charles lawton from ever directing again which is a damn shame i would have loved to see just some alternate butterfly effect version of the world where uh where charles went on to be an accomplished director and was just really prolific and everything who's to say what we might have lost 
But we have the Night of the Hunter, and I think we're very grateful for it. So, Robert, I want to ask, we've sort of, we've talked about a lot of sort of the movie's broad strokes, but I'm curious, is there anything uh, that you want to sort of hone in on specifically? Because there's a lot that we haven't gotten to. I am glad you asked because we have Mm. managed to avoid this entirely so far. Mm. Uh, Lillian Gish's character. That's right. Lillian Gish, star from the silent era. Yes, uh, most notably for Birth of a Nation. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she's playing Miss Cooper in this, who takes in John and Pearl after they run away from Powell. Mm -hmm. And what struck me about her is she seemed very much the love to Powell's hate. She was his opposite. Mm -hmm. Both of them were religious, but she would actually follow scripture and was focused on love and lifting people up. Yeah. Was focused on actually taking and applying the lessons uh, from the Bible and elsewhere and making the world around her a better place for it. Yes. Which I think is really noble. I, I will say this right now. If I was running from a sociopathic, homicidal, crazed priest uh, I would want Lillian Gish with a shotgun to fight for my life. That is <laughs> absolutely. I'm like, deal, Lillian Gish. <laughs> I will trust. I will entrust her with my life any day. Ah, but she was great, and it was kind of surprising that she comes in so late because she has such mm-hmm. an important role to it. Yeah, I think it's um, it is strange, especially considered that she's second build. But I also think it makes sense just structurally because you have to have the kids sort of realize that they're on their own. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. after their mom dies, they really sort of take it on the chin and they're they just say, OK, this is it's us now. It's all on us. And they end up like drifting down the river and sleeping in a farmhouse. There's actually there's one shot during that uh, scene where they're sort of spending the night in a barn where we see the silhouette of Harry Powell riding a horse in the background. And I would be shocked if that shot were not the direct inspiration for uh, a similar shot from the first Lord of the Rings movie where <laughs> there it's the ring wraith that's chasing the hobbits through the forest in the Shire. And we see it sort of silhouetted against the moon. The second I saw that, I was like, oh, Lord of the Rings, that's it. <laughs> Either Peter Jackson saw that and took direct inspiration or it was or that was sort of filtered down through the consciousness, made it way into Lord of the Rings. Either way, I think it's a great shot. And I'm yeah. glad to know that it originated in such a nice place. And it is... Uh, really striking. There's lots of shots throughout the movie like this, and to list them all would take probably the length of the movie, to be honest. (laughs) And yeah, it's really, really exciting. It's really intense, and it really, again, like I mentioned earlier, it comes to this really fascinating conclusion that I think is kind of specific to not just the Great Depression, but also to kind of the American South at the time. There, There's a very gothic undertone and perhaps even overtone to this movie that I've always latched onto, just that the land itself, in a way, is kind of cursed, not for any one event or events in history, but there's just something about it that seems to bring out a lot of evil in the world and sort of personified here by Harry Powell. And that's, that's a tradition that 
has been in a lot of fiction uh, that takes place in the South. And I think this is one of the great examples of it, truth be told. Yeah, I, I can definitely see what you mean with that. Um, one thing that was kind of odd for me at the end was the lynch mob that shows up because I always feel like when you get to that in movies, that's supposed to be shown as like false justice. Hmm. Like famously the Oxbow incident is a movie that's entirely revolved around mob justice more or less. And so seeing them go to this point, it made me confused on how they were trying to leave that ending if that makes Mm. sense that, yeah, it is this horrible guy, but you as a movie are deciding to take it to that length. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought quite about, uh, about it in those terms, but now that you bring it up, I think it knows, I think, I, I feel like the movie is aware of the extremes that it's going to. And I think what it's trying to communicate in at least narratively is that, Yes, it is. It's it's a it's a great length to take this process to, but also it's kind of our only option. We see that Harry Powell is kind of this unstoppable force, almost like a spectral figure. Like it, it, I, I'm, I'm I'm not entirely convinced he's even a human. I think he may have just like this personified force of evil that emerged from the ground at one point and is just <laughs> going around bringing death and and again false profitization if that's even a word wherever (laughs) he goes and uh almost like uh this is not my recommendation for night of the hunter but almost like anton chigurh from no country for old men i think that's a very i think that's that's a very clear inspiration for that character at least in sort of the presence you know yeah yeah. So, so what else? Uh, what what else have we not talked about? Because we've sort of gone over a lot of this movie, but of course, there's always so much uh, left that we that we may miss at the end. Um, just a small tidbit. I really yeah. liked the music in this one, mm-hmm. and so I looked up the composer to see what else they had done. Not really that much. The oh, most notable thing is Walter Schumann. And his most notable thing is that he wrote the Dragnet theme. If you've oh, heard really? that before, <laughs> nice. I didn't know that. That's that's a little little bit of intertextuality there. Yeah, yeah. the score. I I read that they had. I I'm not sure if it was the composer specifically, but they had someone involved with the music for the movie on the set while they were filming it, which is actually quite rare. But they wanted to make sure that whoever was writing sort of the oral you know, glue for this movie that they had a real sense of what they were going for. And I think it worked out really effective. The music is really kind of minimalist and understated, but it's also very atmospheric and effective. And I think it, the movie would not work nearly as well without it. That's exactly it. It's definitely not constant at all. There's plenty of silent moments, but it's used in just the right way that it punctuates a moment and sets the tone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think specifically of right after they, uh, right after Harry Powell uh, kills Willa, their mom, and the kids realize, John and Pearl realize, we got to get the hell out of Dodge. And there's sort of this extended uh, montage, it practically is what it is, of just them 
drifting down the river, fleeing the town as they're being pursued by this by this evil reverend and just sort of going from place to place trying to find scraps of food where they can. And there's this really sad sort of melancholy tune over all of it that really makes the emotion of the scene stand out a lot more than it would otherwise. So I think you're absolutely right to say that. So Robert, uh, one thing, uh, one other thing I'm curious about is because I have I have a very strong feeling about it, and I'm curious to hear yours as well. What do you believe is the correct setting to watch this at home? Of course, not everyone has immediate access to a theater where they can watch this movie. But if you have either a digital version or uh, or a physical copy, what what do you think is the ideal circumstance to watch this? Absolutely, to watch it with the lights out at night. Yep. Yep. Lights out at night. If you watch it during the day, it doesn't come across nearly as well. That sort of creeping terror, I think, is much better when it's dark out and there's as little ambient noise as possible. And a lot of movies I find it doesn't really make that much of a difference. A lot of horror movies, I should say, doesn't really make that much of a difference whether I watch it during the day or at night, as long as I can see the screen, it sort of plays the same either way. This is definitely a movie that, especially because it's in black and white, which was, it it wasn't always going to be that way. It was going to be in color originally. And I'm overjoyed that it was not. I think that the darkness of the human soul really comes through a lot better, at least in the dark, uh, and especially at night. I agree. It's definitely a lot better that they made this in black and white. But I have seen a couple of photos where it is Robert Mitchum in color, like completely oh, really? in costume and everything. Interesting. How do you th- how do you think it would play differently uh, if the whole movie were like that? I think you definitely wouldn't have gotten the same mood out of it, though. Like I mentioned before, the whole shadows and darkness that go with noir horror is doesn't come off as well when there's all these colors contrasting against it. You can't pick up all the subtle blacks in this shot. Yeah, the, it, they, uh, they really let the movie sort of sink into inky blackness at times, which is really yeah. effective. And indeed, very rather bright uh, whites as well and all of that just adds to the contrast, both moral and visual, which is very nice. Robert, if 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 you didn't have anything else that you wanted to acknowledge about Night of the Hunter, of course, I'm sure we could go on for a very long time about it. But I'm curious, did you have a movie that you would recommend to the listeners as sort of a companion piece, maybe a spiritual uh, uh, complement to The Night of the Hunter that you would recommend seeking out as well? Well, like I mentioned before, Cape Fear would yep. definitely be the go-to for that. It's uh, another Robert Mitchum is hunting is down a family. One. Yes, the 1962. Not the Scorsese one. Which I still need to watch just out of curiosity. I've heard mixed things on it. Oh, have you not seen the Scorsese one? I have not. It's quite good, actually. It's it's about I, I would say it's about equally as good as the original. Um, it just sort of does the same things about as well, but of course, it is a different movie. And I think the uh, the ultimate Cape Cape Fear movie is Nick Nolte as the protagonist, whose name I completely forget, and then with robert mitchum as the bad guy which i know of course was impossible because they were not (laughs) acting at the same time but if you could interchange those cast members then you've got a a solid picture there my friend i don't know i think i'd like to see uh benicio del toro doing the robert mitchum character in that 
I can see that. Yeah, I think I think he'd be able to do a really swell job that Benicio. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's awesome. Um, my recommendation, as I brought up numerous times, this movie took a lot of cues from the expressionism of the silent era. And this is a movie that reminds me so much of Night of the Hunter and inversely Night of the Hunter reminds me so much of it. It is a movie that I saw in a theater actually back in 2017 as part of the silent film festival or a silent film festival that I went to. And it is from 1926, I want to say. It is called Sparrows. Have you heard of Sparrows, Robert? I have not. Sparrows is a movie starring Mary Pickford, who is one Ooh. of the founders of United Artists. Yeah, that's that'll Oh yes. That'll get uh get your interest going. And uh she was she's credited as sort of the person who more than anyone else kind of originated film acting as an art form as opposed to theater acting like she actually realized that there were different techniques that needed to be employed and sort of uh, of course there were others who innovated along the way but she was really kind of the progenitor of all of it to to the point now where when we think of actors film is kind of the default medium and so she stars as a a a teenage girl and of course she was in her mid-30s at the time but she was a teenage girl who's living in sort of in in the south in i want to say louisiana but it's somewhere along there somewhere some you know there are swamps in that region yeah it might be florida i'm forgetting the exact state but it is in the south and it taps into that those same gothic undertones that i mentioned with night of the hunter and they and she's the oldest of this sort of harem of uh, children who live under this really oppressive caretaker. They're all orphans, none of them have parents. This is the only place they can live. And of course, the conditions are horrible. And Mary Pickford takes it upon herself to sort of wrangle them all up and get them to a better place and flee from this harmful environment and find a better life for themselves as much as they possibly can. And it is available on Amazon Prime if you're a subscriber. So no excuse not to watch it then. And it is incredibly atmospheric. I still remember so many shots from this movie. And I think I I would be surprised if this was not at least partially an inspiration for The Night of the Hunter. So uh, check out Sparrows if you haven't. And it's a great silent movie to watch if you're not a silent movie fan, I would even say. And there's not a lot of those. So uh, take that as you will. Robert, what do you say we do the strangest about face ever and talk <laughs> about airplane exclamation point? Let's do it. <laughs> Stand by for the most extraordinary chain of events ever swept up into high adventure. Hey, Larry, where's the forklift? Forklift! It's over there with the baggage water. Airplane. Airplane is drama. Uh, this is Dr. Brody at the Mayo Clinic. There's a passenger on your Chicago flight 209 or a little girl named Lisa Davis en route to Minneapolis. She's scheduled for a heart transplant. I want you to make sure that she's kept in a reclined position and that a continuous watch is kept on her IV. Airplane is action. Airplane is romance. I love you, Elaine. I love you. Airplane is music. There is only one. 
one river, there is only one sea. Airplane is dancing. Has the screen been so big? You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. Leslie Nielsen. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Lloyd Bridges. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Why could make a cap? What a brooch, a pterodactyl. You know about airplane. Like it's almost redundant to even explain what it is, but it is one of the most well-known and acclaimed comedies of all time, and rightfully so, I would say. Are you on the? Are we on the same page with that one, Robert? I absolutely agree with that. Um, this might be one of my favorite movies. Definitely uh, up there oh, for just comedies. Period? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, so that begs the question, what is your, what's sort of your history with it? How did you first discover the goodness that is Airplane? So it was definitely, I watched this with my parents the first time I saw it <laughs> because okay. they brought it to my attention. They're like, oh, you got to check this out. Fair enough. Um, what are we talking here? Like 13-ish years old, maybe? I was probably 15 by okay. the time I saw this. Um, then... The second time I saw this was when I was in Iceland, and it was one of the few things in English on TV one day. Oh, and we wow. ended up just watching the whole movie. <laughs> that is an awesome story. Oh, my. I would love to be able to say that I watched Airplane in Iceland. That sounds like just a, that's that's an awesome thing. So, so, and, and it has, has there been uh, like many viewings upon that, or is it only just a small handful of times? It's been a handful of times, but it's also one of those movies that if anyone just goes, hey, let's put on airplane, I'm down, put it on. I'm going to be laughing absolutely. through the whole time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very much in the same boat, actually, where I think I've only seen this twice, I think. Maybe, I, and I feel like I've seen it three times because of the number of scenes that have again, been filtered down through the consciousness and have inspired yeah. so many others to sort of do their own spin on it. And indeed, Airplane is actually sort of its own amalgamation of a lot of pop entertainment at the time. I'm curious, um, how much do you know about the airport movies of the 1970s? I know of them. Yes. <laughs> they, the airport movies which started in the year 1970 with a movie aptly titled Airport, was directed by uh, George Seaton, who's done a handful of notable things. And it sort of is credited most often as the movie that really kicked off the disaster genre of the 1970s that yeah. was actually quite prevalent. And it's a movie about just an airplane where a bomb goes off in the plane and they just have to bring it in safely. And there are all of these obstacles in their way. And it's a huge, huge ensemble cast of characters <laughs> uh, like Burt Lancaster and Helen Hayes and many others that I can't remember off the top of my head. And it spawned 
of a short-lived franchise. There were four airport movies throughout the 70s, and every single one of them had a huge cast on them to the point where it's weird that these movies are not talked about very often anymore, probably because Airplane has overshadowed them because (laughs) it took them all, sort of crushed it into one gelatinous sphere of disaster filmmaking and sprinkled in a ton of ridiculous comedy to it ridiculous comedy (laughs) there's there's something about the sense of humor in this movie it is so unabashedly goofy like these are i i can totally imagine someone watching this movie now for the first time and referring to almost every joke in this movie as like a dad joke you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah i can see that but it it has such a conviction to it and it has it has this attitude of we know it's stupid we know it's dumb we really don't care you're either along for the ride no pun intended or you're not and lo and behold turns out almost everyone is this is i've i've never heard of anyone not liking this movie yeah like i yeah i don't think i've met anyone who said oh airplane that's a bad movie like mm-hmm. At the very least, it does what it sets out to do. And I think it's hard to call something like that a bad movie. Yeah. I was going to say what I think really works about the jokes in this is that mm. they come so fast. Like, you'll just have one <laughs> joke after another. And if one doesn't work or it isn't really that funny, you're already on to the next joke and probably laughing at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, and, I'll, and I'll just be fully uh, honest here. Not all of the jokes of this movie still work, if indeed they ever did. There's a lot, yeah. and and not, A, because they're just sort of not as funny anymore because uh, we've sort of, you know, changed our view on things as a culture as yeah. time has gone on. But some of the jokes, they aren't even that good. And yet I find myself laughing at them. The, the one I think of most specifically is early in the movie, the captain of the plane is on the phone with the Mayo Clinic, which of course is... <laughs> like has shelves and shelves full of mayo and they say someone says like all right we've got a call from i forget what what is it i actually have this yeah yeah, i have this written down it's like we've got ham on line five and he goes give me ham on five and hold the mayo hold the mayo (laughs) there's that is so stupid yeah and yet I'm laughing so much because they went so out of their way to make that joke. Like that is not a simple joke. There's a lot of setup necessary to make that joke. And yet they went for it. They took the time and whether or not it paid off comedically, kind of the fact that they did it is enough. You know what I'm saying? Yes, exactly. Oh my. It is so great. What, what are What are some of the other great ones? Uh, oh, I'm glad you asked. This movie. It's hard um, to narrow it down, you know? So the one that I love the most, mm. just my favorite line in this, and I don't understand why it is, <laughs> is when the stewardess comes up and she goes, oh, would you like another coffee? And the woman goes, no. The guy <laughs> says, I'll have another cup. And then in her head, she goes, Jim never has another cup of coffee at home. <laughs> yeah. And that becomes a recurring thing. Like it cuts back to <laughs> the like the inner monologue of her mind a couple of times. Where yeah, like, it was. Jim uh, never does this at home, and I'm like, I don't even know what the joke is. <laughs> it was another one was once he gets sick, he starts throwing up, and she goes, "Jim never throws up at home." <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, you know, I've heard that this movie actually a lot of the jokes in the movie are sort of references to contemporary TV commercials at the time. So I actually wouldn't be surprised if that was from a really popular commercial. It would be like if in a movie from like 2013 or something, someone made a Jake from State Farm joke. And then there's <laughs> someone in like the year 2066 watching that movie and they're like, what is what is Jake from State Farm? I have no idea. So for all we know, it's just something that has been lost to the public consciousness. But that actually, I wanted to mention a little bit about how this came to be. Uh, it was, as I mentioned earlier, it was Zucker, Abrams, Zucker, uh, Zaz, as I call them, Z-A-Z. <laughs> and they were sort of these uh, comedians who were writing a lot of skits for TV. And in fact, they ended up uh, writing the Kentucky Fried movie directed by John Landis. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Kentucky Fried movie. Has has that come across your radar, Robert? I haven't, but like it's been on my radar before. Yeah, it is. Has this very sporadic comedic style. It's not unlike uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, where it's just a bunch of vignettes that sort of have nothing to do with each other. Uh, the difference is that with uh, stuff like the Kentucky Fried movie, they're punctuated by sort of these variety show-esque, like fake commercials and stuff. Um, <laughs> there's, I remember specifically, there's one segment from the Kentucky Fried movie, which is just a fake commercial. And it's a weird joke, but it's still, it, it still mostly plays just advertising zinc oxide the mineral like not even try to sell it just saying all the stuff that's neat about it and saying here's every here's the way your life would be different without zinc oxide and suddenly it's this woman in her kitchen and all of the stuff that that is made of zinc oxide in some way disappears into thin air like all of the shelves from her fridge disappear the food falls to the ground the parking brake on her car suddenly no longer work no, uh, no longer works and it comes <laughs> crashing through the wall you know, the fire fire starts on the stove the curtain rods fall and that's just it it just ends there there's no actual conclusion to it and <laughs> that movie is like half funny and half of the jokes just still don't work and have actually aged rather poorly. So I think it's clear to see that it was uh, it was from the same creative minds behind it. But what happened was that they wrote the script for Airplane actually way back in like 1975. So this was kind of on the shelf and sort of bouncing around looking for a home for a while. And what happened was that when the Kentucky Fried movie was made, they were on the set and they realized ah, I see. So if we really want our vision to come through, we got to actually direct the thing. And of course, that is what ended up happening. And the most interesting thing is that the way they got material for these sketches was that they would let their tape recorder or not tape recorder, uh, their VCR go on late night and they would just record whatever happened to be playing on these late night stations. And at one point, they came across this movie Zero Hour from 1957 which is a thriller that takes place on an airplane where everyone gets food poisoning 
from the fish that had been served that night and <laughs> a soldier with PTSD has to land the plane. Sound familiar, Robert? <laughs> I had actually come across that when I was just kind of doing some research and there's a YouTube video where they're like, oh, how similar are they? And uh-huh. just like showing, oh, here's the soldier with PTSD that has to land the plane when people get sick. Yeah. There are so many similarities. I watched Zero Hour last night and then watched Airplane early this morning. And so the similarities were so apparent. It's kind of hilarious the way they can use the exact same dialogue in most cases. Like they did not do, in a lot of examples, they did not do almost any editing except what they would do is they would add something else to the end of the sentence. And of course, the greatest example of that is. In Zero Hour, there's a scene where a kid gets taken up to the cockpit of the plane to sort of see what's going on. And the captain says, you ever been in a cockpit before, Joey? The kid says no. And in Zero Hour, it ends there. In Airplane, the pilot, played by Peter Graves, asks that question. (laughs) Little Joey says no. And then the pilot goes, you ever see a man naked? And no one acknowledges it. That's the that's the sort of the most absurd part of it all is that they sort of just move right on past it. Everyone is very kind of deadpan throughout this movie in the way that they're not acknowledging the ridiculousness of all these zany situations that they find themselves in. And it makes for much greater comedy. And that was a very conscious choice on the part of the screenwriters. And that reminds me of another one of the bits that I really liked about this with just how people are deadpan to these crazy situations is Uh when he first rolls up to the airport he parks the taxi and the person gets in but he leaves the meter running and he's like i'll be right back (laughs) and then you see him getting his plane get on the ticket cuts back to the guy still in the taxi halfway through the movie guy's still in the taxi back at the (laughs) airport and then if you sat through all the credits and got to the stinger at the end Guy is still sitting in the taxi. He looks at his watch and he goes something like, I'll give him 15 more minutes and then I'm leaving. No, I had (laughs) no idea about that. Oh, that is hilarious. Man, I really should have watched to the end. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's funny, though, just the way that it keeps cutting back. And I love that the meter's going. That's just the (laughs) cherry on top of the joke. And exactly. uh, That reminds me of, and this has nothing to do with anything, but I just have to say it. I talked about the movie Gremlins 2, the new batch a few weeks ago with my friend Jason Reed. I completely forgot to mention this, but stay until the end of the credits. There's a funny bit at the end. I just wanted to put that out there just to make sure that I at least said it once because I felt bad about not mentioning it. And now I'm randomly doing it here. Um, One of my favorite bits that is... The joke itself is kind of funny, but it's more the implication of the joke that I find especially amusing. And it's that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar plays the co-pilot of the plane. And at one point, little Joey, who gets to go up and, and see the cockpit of the plane, says, say, you're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> and he keeps insisting, no, I'm the... Uh, I'm the co-pilot uh, pilot, Roger Murdoch, right? See, this <laughs> yeah. is my name tag. That proves it. And at one point, just gets so frustrated because the kid is saying like, yeah, my dad says you're not that good of a player or something like that. And at that point, he kind of snaps and says like, listen, I'm a good player and here's why. So it is actually Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who's <laughs> moonlighting under a different name as an airline co-pilot. <laughs> the very idea of that. 
is kind of enough for me. Like the, the actual bit is kind of funny the way he sort of gradually gets more and more frustrated. But I just love that that's a thing in this universe and they kind of just play it off. Like that is kind of that is kind of the magic of this movie is the way there's all these all this crazy stuff and yet it's all normal to them and of course that is what makes it infinitely funnier there and there are some jokes even that I'm not I don't even know what the joke is as I mentioned earlier for instance there's one shot where and and I'm not even exaggerating literally a shot of Robert Hayes who plays the uh, grief or not grief a uh, uh, trauma stricken ex-soldier who has to land the plane under immense pressure and he's talking to like the radio control tower over the intercom thingy and there's one shot where he's got like a bird on his shoulder and i don't know what the what the joke in that (laughs) scene is and then in the next shot it's gone like there are so many, there are so many things in this movie that I noticed here that I did not notice on my first viewing. <laughs> Specifically, it's a lot of the text in the background, the small text that you don't think to read closely a lot of yeah. the time because you'd think it'd be really self-explanatory. Uh, my personal favorite is the uh, "fasten your seatbelt" sign, which says in English "fasten seatbelts," and then in yeah. a, in a language that doesn't exist, right underneath that says put on a deceit belts or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Like it's and then this they, made up language. Yeah, yeah. And then they had another one on like the emergency exit door and I can't remember it, but it was another one of those where it was some made up joke language. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. notice that. Yeah. It really, that's the great thing about this movie is that it holds secret treasure to be found with every successive viewing. And I regret not watching this as, as often as I should have, because there's really a lot to, uh, to get at in here with just the spades and spades of silliness throughout. Yeah. And, and not even just after the credits, but during the credits, they're still putting in jokes. One of oh, them man, included really? um, in charge of a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> like they had just these joke oh, credit titles in there. That's hilarious. Oh, I'm so I feel so bad for not for not thinking that they would put something in there because of course they would. That's like a uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, like, you know, llamas moose trained to mix cement and sign yeah. complicated <laughs> insurance forms. Oh my, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye on that next time. And uh Airplane luckily is on Netflix, so hopefully it stays yes. that way because I want to I want to be able to access thing uh access this thing really regularly. And yeah, I mean, there there's so much in this movie. Like, what what else have we not mentioned when it comes to uh, the some of the humorous bits throughout? Well, I think we should also get into uh, some of the notable people in this movie. Yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, we've got Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. That Doc. character was almost played by Christopher Lee. Hmm, which that is would have been very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it really. I am serious and don't call me Shirley or something like that. I, yeah. I mean, I could see it. I think it's especially funny because Christopher Lee was in uh, Airport 77, the third Ooh. airport movie. So that would have been a, a, a fun little shout out. He plays a scuba diver. And actually, this is a total tangent, but uh, Christopher Lee's wife in that movie is named Karen. And there are so many funny lines of dialogue that 
I turned the subtitles on and thought this would make a great meme since the name Karen kind of has new meanings now. <laughs> There's one yeah. scene where he says, uh, I, I can actually pull up the screenshot now, uh, but where he says like, don't worry, Karen, it'll be fine. And I thought, man, I'm sure that all the meme lords could really uh, make something special <laughs> with that. And that I would love to see. Or uh, My favorite one was uh, his wife like shouts at a stewardess or something or just sort of scolds her a little bit. And Christopher Lee says, that was very cruel, Karen. <laughs> that right there. That's the perfect meme one. fodder. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna see to it that that becomes the next hit meme on the interwebs. Boy, do I yeah, sound get weird. that uh, screenshot circulating. There People got to go. get on that. I'll have to figure out uh, a way to do that. Uh, and yeah, we've got we've got a uh, Robert Hayes as I mentioned as Ted Stryker. This was the most fascinating bit of almost casting to me. That character was written for David Letterman. Hmm. Which is really bizarre. He actually yeah. wanted to be in Kentucky Fried Movie as sort of this news anchor that appears throughout and says silly things. He didn't get the role. Wanted this one. Still didn't get it. Poor David Letterman. I would re- I would have been curious to see uh, how he would have played that. I think there's something sort of frantic about Robert Hayes' just general demeanor that I'm not entirely sure would have come across with David Letterman. But even still, that would have been a remarkable historical footnote. Yeah. Yeah. And who else do we have? We've got uh, Julie Haggerty as Elaine, who is has a lot of the funniest jokes in this movie, I think. So one of the before they're famous people that was in this is Jonathan Banks. And I'm not sure. Have you seen Breaking Bad? Uh, I've seen like a half dozen episodes. I'm not nearly as caught mm. up as I should be. So Jonathan Banks plays Mike Trout on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's a pretty prominent character in there. He was in Airplane and he's like in his 30s in this. He's the guy with the leather, leather jacket that's in the air traffic tower near the end of the movie. He's only got like a few lines in the whole thing, but I just thought it was so fascinating to see this character from breaking bad with uh, all his hair still and oh, really? in this comedy um and then my favorite cameo that we got was barbara billingsley as jive lady as what lady jive lady oh right yeah and she had the scene where she's uh communicating with the uh two passengers that only speak in jive yeah which is a which is a weird premise for a joke, but I think they play it relatively straight. Like, and it's it only works, I think, because she does it so well. Like mm-hmm. her lines and just how she delivers. But I knew her growing up because my dad liked the show Leave It to Beaver. So if there were reruns on, we were watching that, and so I know her as the mother from Leave It to Beaver. Hmm. Nice. And and this is, was that around the same time or was that earlier? That was uh, much before this. That was like in the fifties. Uh, it was one of those early sitcoms. God, gotcha. 50s, 60s. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I actually, it, you, you may have been able to gather my TV knowledge is not uh, even remotely up to par. So that's ah. <laughs> very, very good to know. Very good to know. Um, and yeah, it's just, I mean, of, of course we could go on. I'm sure we could address uh, every single joke in the movie there's one thing it's not one specific uh bit but there's something 
I find very funny every time I watch this, which is that there are a couple scenes which involve kind of a strange stunt where a string is being used to sort of lift yes. something up. And you can see it every single time. And I don't <laughs> think the filmmakers care. They yeah. legitimately don't care that we can see the string. I think the funniest example is at the Mayo Clinic. There's a heart in a Petri yes. dish that's bouncing up and down. <laughs> and the string is so clearly visible. It's hilarious. And I would be surprised if that was not a conscious decision on their part. Uh, the ones that are most notable are during that flashback when they're in the club and dancing <laughs> yeah. and meeting for the first time. And he's swinging around in the air and you can just <laughs> see the strings. Oh, my. Yeah, there's there's so much funny stuff. Um, I'm sure we could go on and on about it. But yeah. yeah, there is something about a movie just embracing its own persona so thoroughly and so willingly in the way that Airplane does that it, in spite of all of its many sort of failed attempts at jokes, of which there are a decent amount, I would say the vast majority of them work, but also there are, there are a few that don't. Yeah, And there's something about just the conviction, the honesty of it that I think makes it really easy to watch because we all have had that feeling of saying like, listen, this is just this is what I got. And you can either take it or leave it. And the fact that what they had was so consistently good just makes it all the more fun. And I think it's a real classic through and through. Yeah, it's a movie that never seven, second guess itself. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think it absolutely has that. So with that in mind, I'm I'm fascinated to hear what your recommendation uh if or perhaps if you have multiple cuz I have I have two for this one. So uh I would like to hear Robert, what the hell did you come up with that is at least somewhat similar to Airplane to recommend? Well, I went for another one of my favorite comedies, Life of Brian from the year mm. prior. Interesting. We I, we've actually talked about that on Extra Milestone back in December. So that's a that's a very good one. Why this one specifically? Why do you think it uh, taps into something similar? Well, I feel like a lot of the humor comes off similar. The it's this zany world where they play by their own rules, and whereas mm -hmm. Life of Brian, you do have Brian kind of being the voice of reason in there. Yep. It's still largely a we're going on a wild ride. You can hang on or you can leave kind of yeah. comedy. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite moment in that entire movie is almost is also the most random. And it's when Brian is being pursued by the Roman guards and falls off the top of a tower and into a flying saucer and goes into space and almost gets involved <laughs> in this intergalactic war and then crashes <laughs> back on Earth. And that's literally the end of it. <laughs> That joke uh, is yeah. nothing. That joke has no reason to be there. And yet they really put a ton of effort into it clearly. And they went yeah. for it and it paid off because it gets a, an enormous laugh out of me every single time. So is that the, uh, was that the only one that you had for that? Well, I also had the naked gun, which, ah, you know what? I haven't seen that and I regret not seeing that. Really? Yeah. Huh? I've uh, never gotten around to it. I mean, that's, uh, Leslie Nielsen as well, and it's from I think uh, Z A Z. Yeah, I believe so. So, what is actually? You know what? I've never. 
I know of it. I don't actually know what it is. Is it like a is it like a police kind of thing? What is the what is the deal with the naked gun? Yeah, it is a police comedy movie starring Leslie Nielsen as a detective. Um, you also, if I remember correctly, you get a young OJ Simpson in there. Oh, really? The first one. Yeah. Weird. Oh my. So is it just, is it kind of the same deal with airplane then where it sort of just takes all these elements of the genre that we're really familiar with as a sort of, as a culture and just sort of yeah. adds funny to them. Yeah. That's, that's how I would describe it. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I can't really get, get into the uh, details of it. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's been on my list for a very long time, and I hear it brought up uh, quite often. So maybe this is a sign that it is finally time. Uh, I think it is. I think you're right. So my recommendations, uh, I have two, and they are the two most similar movies to Airplane that I could think of. The first one, which is very obvious, is the sequel, Airplane 2, the sequel. That's literally the title. Uh which stars most of the same cast, which I was actually very surprised by. It is by hmm. a different director, uh, Ken. Let me make sure I'm getting the name right. Ken something. And <laughs> the idea is that it takes place decades in the future when space travel is just sort of a humdrum thing, much in the way <laughs> of Futurama. And yet no one has aged at all. Everyone is the exact same <laughs> age as they are from the movie. And it's meant to be really far in the future. We see a poster for like Rocky 38, I believe it was. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it does not take take place a little bit. And it's mostly the same story, except instead of an airplane going from one city on Earth to the other, it's a shuttle going to the moon and it gets knocked off course and is heading directly for the sun. And <laughs> it doesn't really expand the series, if I could even put it that way. It doesn't build upon anything, but it just does the same thing. The jokes are comparably funny, I would say. And it has, in the last 20 minutes, William Shatner shows up. <laughs> and I was dying laughing through like every second he was on screen. So I think Airplane 2 is really funny. I would, I would possibly even go so far as to say it's just as funny as uh, Airplane 1, although certainly not as uh, idiosyncratic. And Ken Finkelman was the director. So yeah, so not the most accomplished director, but certainly was able to sort of recapture the same magic rather effectively, I thought. And that movie is also on Amazon Prime Video. And my other recommendation, I'm curious, I, I'll bet you've heard of this movie. I'm curious if you've seen it. Robert, have you ever seen Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? Ah, uh, you know, I haven't. And uh, <laughs> I definitely should at some point. It's really, really strange. <laughs> it is a movie that much in the same way that Airplane was sort of a send up, uh, a parody, if you will, of the disaster genre. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, released in 1978, <laughs> is a send up of B monster movies of like the 50s and 60s. And Instead of having a weird like guy in a rubber suit be the monster, the monster in this movie are tomatoes. Hmm. That's it. <laughs> Just tomatoes who gain sentience and come to life. And it's not like they grow mouths and stuff and fangs and hands. They're just tomatoes rolling around 
crashing into people and hurt and evidently killing them. And sort of the the greatest joy of this movie is when you see the effects of what are clearly like just paper mache tomatoes rolling down a sidewalk as someone is running away terrified. It's really <laughs> funny. And there's again, there's a lot of humor. Obviously, this has just become kind of a theme, but there's a lot of humor that just that just plays a little bit differently than it does today. And uh, it's not probably not quite as funny as it was originally, if indeed it ever was. But a lot of the jokes are still really funny. I think most notably, there is a boardroom where all of these you know, officials, these government officials meet to discuss how to deal with the tomato problem. But for whatever reason, the boardroom is really tiny and they can barely fit into it. And they have to climb up on the desk just to be able to get through and find their seats in the boardroom. And it's a lot of jokes really similar to that. And it's got this earworm theme song that you'll be humming for weeks. So be warned about that. But I think it's worth it. Uh, I think it's really funny. The movie has its naysayers, but I'm a supporter of it through and through. So yeah, I don't, that one was on prime video. I don't think it is anymore, but it is relatively easy to find uh, via rental. And I think it's on Tubi actually, which is a great uh, service for B movies of this kind. Tubi is great. Yeah. This is not an endorsement, but Tubi TV is really good. It's a, it's a streaming service that does, that is free. It does have ads, but they're structured in such a way that it doesn't disrupt what you're watching. They actually place them sort of strategically. And if you have ADD like me, it's great to be able to take just a little bit of a breather every like 15, 20 minutes or something like that. So Yeah. yeah, highly recommend that. Um, yeah. And the best part is that they time the commercials because I really hate that when I'm watching a movie uh, on like Crackle or something. And then the Crackle is the comes worst. in in the middle of a scene. Crackle, if you're listening, just the en- the entity of Crackle, <laughs> I don't like you. So if you ever want to sponsor this, find someone else, bud, because I'm not having it. It's I've, I can't I can't do Crackle anymore. It's just the worst. but absolutely yeah, they- to be. They will not insert seven ads in the middle of a sentence like Crackle does. (laughs) Oh, my. And yeah, with that vicious remark, I think that is uh, just about all we got. Robert, thank you so much for joining me on The Extra Milestone. I look forward to getting to do it again. Let the good listeners know out there if they would like to find you online, not in person, because that would be diverging (laughs) personal information. Where can they go to find your goings on? Well, you can find me on Letterboxd. That's the uh, best place to find out my thoughts on movies. I keep that pretty updated as I watch stuff. Um, I do have a Twitter and Instagram that I periodically update. And all of those are just going to be under Film Ace Rob. Hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Yes. And I am on Twitter at Nolan Sam. And I'm also on Letterboxd. That's where I spend most of my time as well. So by all means, head on over there. See what it's all about. It's a lot of fun. I really like Letterboxd. I've been on there for a long time <laughs> and plan to stay there for a long time. And I believe with that, we're going to sign off from the uh, uh, from the white zone, which is for the loading and unloading of passengers only. I'm Sam Noland. And from the Munsville Penitentiary in lockdown, <laughs> this is Rob. I love the idea that you're recording in an actual jail. <laughs> that like they've allowed you access to recording equipment. That's very hilarious. 
Yeah, the warden was very polite about this. I can tell. I can tell. (laughs) And we'll see you on the next Extra Milestone.